gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. Hebrews is written to a people that had profound understanding of the Old Testament. They had been educated in it. They, they knew what the Old Testament taught. And it is for this reason that we think that the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews, even though the author and the audience somewhat remain a mystery to us. But as we look through the book of Hebrews, there is so much here that is applicable for us today. We do have to pull apart and understand what the author is trying to say in light of the Old Testament, in light of the covenants, uh, high priesthood, and things that seem so foreign to us. And this morning, I think something that, that many Christians don't understand, and yet I think will be so helpful to talk through, is a very simple question, and that is this. A key question that guides us this morning, a question that is so important for us to understand, and it is this. What happens when you put your trust in Jesus? What happens when you put your trust in Jesus? I'm talking about what happens in that moment. What does God do? What happens when you put your trust in Jesus? Let's read Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6, and we'll go all the way down to verse 13. So this is a little bit of a review, but I think it's going to be important for us to gather the, the, the entire idea of what is going on here. So beginning in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 8. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah." Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Last week we talked about verse 6 through 9, the concept of a covenant, that a covenant is a promise, but it's also a, a peace treaty in a political sense, especially in the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, we see it clearly. It's a peace treaty between two warring parties, between God and between man. Man is at war against God, and God is at war against evil and sin. But God in His grace has brokered a treaty, a covenant with the people of Israel, that if they would walk in the covenant and they would walk in this treaty of peace, then they could enjoy the blessings of access to God and relationship to God. 
the covenant was without fault in that it was perfect, as God himself is perfect. And yet in verse 8 it says, but he finds fault with them. The covenant failed not because God failed, but rather because one of the two signatories or signers, as it were, of this peace treaty, mankind, Israel, us, are incapable of upholding our end of the bargain. We cannot keep the law. We cannot be sinless. We cannot attain to the standards that God has set, and therefore, we have broken the covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 24 to 26, it's, you can see it here in this passage where Jeremiah writes, but they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And they went backward, not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently, this is God speaking, sent all my servants, the prophets to them, day after day. God is fighting to uphold the covenant, fighting to draw the people in. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear but they stiffened their neck. You know, it's that image. They stiffened their neck in stubbornness. What is going on here in this passage is that the writer is saying that the Old Testament, the first covenant, is not invalid in that it doesn't teach us about God. It does teach us about God. It teaches us about who he is. But its ability to broker a lasting peace between God and man, it is not able because we fail. God, however, is going to bring a new covenant. Not, verse 9, like the covenant that I made with their fathers, but rather this covenant is going to be upheld by God alone. A new covenant that will never fail. A new covenant that will never require a new promise, a new peace treaty. For this peace treaty will be upheld by God. This covenant relationship can never be broken. Here's the big idea for today. The big idea of this passage. The new covenant upheld by Jesus Christ forever changes you. The new covenant upheld by Jesus Christ forever changes you. You see, we would fail. We do fail in, in our sin. We are incapable and powerless and so what God is going to do is he is going to uphold the covenant and transform your heart. He's going to make you new. In verse 10 through 13, we see the composition of the new covenant. What this new covenant entails, what this new peace treaty entails. And if you want to break it down into three easy parts, here they are. Looking at verse 10 down to verse 13. This new covenant is going to implant God's law into their hearts. It's going to write the law of God directly into their nature. Number two, it's going to give knowledge of God as a personal experience. Not something distant or simply academic, but knowledge of God as a personal experience. And then number three, the, the, this new covenant is going to eternally blot out 
the sins of the people. That God will remember them, remember their sins no more. Let's look at the first one. The implanting of God's law in their hearts. And I call this, if, we, if you want to write this down in your notes, it, this is a new heart nature. The new covenant is going to give a new heart nature. I will put my laws into their minds. It's not just on the outside, Deuteronomy 6, where you're to walk about them, talk about them, and those are still, of course, helpful practices, but the law is still external to their nature. God in this new covenant is going to make the law internal to their nature. That there is now an internal sense of what is holy and affection for what is holy. Now this is not new. Even in the Old Testament it speaks about a new covenant that is going to change the heart. Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 19 to 20. God says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules, and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Even the Old Testament understood that, that, that this new peace treaty, this new covenant, this new promise that God was going to bring was not just something outside, but it was going to do something from within. It was going to transform the heart, transform our very nature. You see, the Old Covenant, what we call the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, it did not have the power to change the heart. It did not have the power to change the heart. When we actually think about uh, the law, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Through the, through the law comes knowledge of sin, the Apostle Paul wrote. So the law gave us knowledge of sin. It gave us knowledge of God's holy character. It teaches us about godly ethics, not only in the, the sacred environment, the place of worship, but how we do business and how we operate within the secular world. It teaches us about sin and about righteousness. But the law is powerless to help you do what is right. It is not a, a power to change the heart. So a new covenant was needed that had the power to change the heart. I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And then we see number two, that the new covenant gives a personal knowledge of God. A personal knowledge of God. I will be their God, they shall be my people, verse 10. And then in verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So part of the new covenant is that I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, now this, is, this is not unique to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were called God's people, but this here has a sense of particular belonging and ownership. That they do not need someone else to come and to speak and to teach them, but rather God himself will be their teacher from within. 
Now, let me make a, a caveat, a parenthetical statement here. This passage is not saying that we don't need other believers in our life to teach us, to instruct us, or that we don't need to be under the preaching of the Word of God. These are no all part of God's ordained graces to teach us. But what is different in this new covenant is that God Himself is going to give you an illumination, an understanding that you could never have and didn't have before in the Old Testament. A special access, an ability to commune with God, not through the temple or the tabernacle, but a direct communion where you can walk into his presence and learn directly from the throne of God. So it gives us a new heart nature, number one. Number two, a personal knowledge of God. And then number three, in this new covenant, sins are eternally removed. They're eternally blotted out. That God will have mercy towards our iniquities, our sins, and remember the sins no more. Now we need to be careful here. It does not mean that God forgets because otherwise he would cease to be God. God's omniscience means that he holds all knowledge at all times and all at the same time in his hands from eternity past to eternity future. Now that one concept when we meditate on God's omniscience to me is an absolute mystery and cause for awe. It is taking all of my mental faculties to stand before you and to concentrate on one message to hopefully communicate to you. I'm sure it's taking all of your mental faculties just to sit here and listen to me. But our, the finiteness of our thought and even how much knowledge we can handle at any given moment is finite and limited. And when that begins to exceed, we use common phraseology like, I feel what? Overwhelmed. My brain capacity has reached maximum. But God's omniscience is such that God doesn't have, as it were, separate trains of thought. He holds all knowledge and all thoughts and all truth and the capacity for everything that is in existence and beyond, all possibilities, probabilities, eternity, past, and future, although there is no such thing as a probability or possibility with God because only that which he ordains come into existence, but he holds it all equally at the same time. It's unbelievable. The infinite intellect of our God. It's not that he forgets and that he doesn't know our sins. When it says, I will remember their sins no more, it means I will not hold their sins against them. I will not hold their sins against them. Now we're going to come back to that. The sins are eternally removed. A personal knowledge of God and a new nature. But how will God affect this covenant in people's lives? Going back to that key question at the beginning. How does God do this? What happens at that moment of salvation? When God by his sovereignty draws your heart and then you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
you believe. And all who call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, will be saved. At that moment of salvation, you are entering in to the new covenant that was brokered on the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus, the Messiah, came and brokered a new covenant, a new peace treaty. And on the cross, he died for the sins of all peoples and all nations, all peoples who believe in him. And if you believe in him and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, not trusting in anything else, then now you enter into that new covenant. And when you enter into that new covenant, something happens. And it happens by the agency of the Holy Spirit. What happens? In technical terms, we call it regeneration. That when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are regenerated. Now what is regeneration? Regeneration, perhaps with, with I can describe it with, with four word pictures that Scripture uses to talk about spiritual regeneration in the Holy Spirit. Number one, spiritual birth. Number two, a spiritual cleansing. Number three, a spiritual creation. And number four, a spiritual resurrection. Now, if you didn't catch all these, stop scribbling so fast. Don't worry, we'll come back to them. Ephesians chapter 2 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the, pow the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in death, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, do you hear this? By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We have a death nature. We do not have the power to walk in the holiness of God. So when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God says, I'm doing something new that's going to be upheld by my power, that's going to be causal by my goodness and grace. And when someone trusts in my son, I send my Holy Spirit, and they will, like Hebrew says, will be given a new heart nature. They are spiritually born again. When speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus told him, you must be born again. Using two Greek words that literally mean born from above. Born from above. A spiritual recreation. John's first epistle in the New Testament repeatedly refers to being born of God. Those who've been born anew by the power of the Spirit. Number two, spiritual cleansing. Paul twice uses the Greek word lutron to refer to those who are filthy with sin. But they have been washed clean by the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. They've been made, transformed into a new nature with a new righteousness. They are, number three, spiritually created anew that 
we are a new creation. And, and if we look at, if we look at the, 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 the word that is used here in the Greek, the anakinosis has the idea, or anakinos has the idea of something that is new in quality. Not just new as in chronologically something new, you know, something that happens new in time. No, this is a, a, a new in quality. There is something qualitatively new about who you are as a result of the Spirit's work in your life. Christians have a new nature with new spiritual capacities. The regenerated who've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who have now been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, listen to me, this, this is something so profound. You have something that is even better than what Adam was originally in before the fall into sin. This is why again and again the Apostle Paul talks about the the new Adam that is Christ. You see, Adam was created in innocence and Christ recovers that innocence. So in a sense, yes, we are the same. We recover what Adam lost, what Adam and Eve lost. But Adam did not have participation in the divine nature through the Holy Spirit like we are granted through Jesus Christ. But you have something that's even better. You are created new. You are given spiritual resurrection. You've been translated from death to life. And as we look at the work of the Holy Spirit, if if you were to ask the common Christian, say, what does the Holy Spirit do? Many Christians would say, he helps people speak in tongues. Which unfortunately is such a misunderstanding of the primary role of the Holy Spirit that is a part of the Trinity. The Father who draws and the Son who accomplishes salvation and then the Spirit who makes it work. And the Spirit who loves to bring glory to the Son. His role in redemption and the magnifying of Christ is overwhelmingly the primary role that he functions. And if we look through Scripture, there's six things that you can see the Spirit does. He baptizes the believer with the Spirit into the body of Christ. And this all happens at salvation. You are baptized. This is not a separate baptism where you're getting some special powers. You are baptized into, spiritually, into Christ himself. The Father seals the believer with the Spirit as a show of ownership. Remember we just talked about that in Hebrews, that I will be their God, they will be my people. The Spirit indwells the believer. The Spirit fills the believer. Then he produces spiritual fruit in the believer's life because now the law of God is written on their hearts. Before Christ, you had no affection for holiness. Your natural state was to long for that which is unholy. When Christ saves you, And the Holy Spirit transforms you. 
It doesn't mean that all of a sudden your battles with sin go away, but now you have an affection for holiness like you never had before. You have a grief over sin, whereas before you celebrated your sin, but now when you sin, there is a heaviness of heart and a brokenness. Because of the Holy Spirit who lives within you, one of the greatest signs that you belong to Jesus is a heart that is sensitive to holiness and broken when you sin. The Holy Spirit regenerates you and transforms you and the Holy Spirit gifts the believer for service. He equips you. This is the new covenant. So I'm going back to Hebrews. Holy Spirit makes you a new creation with a new heart nature. The law of God by the Holy Spirit is now written on your heart. Your affections are transformed. The old covenant did not give you the power to live but by the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives within you, you now have the power of God to obey, to live, to walk in his ways. The Holy Spirit is with you. I will be their God. They will be my people. The Holy Spirit indwells you and becomes your teacher. Did not Jesus say that? I'm going to send the Spirit. He's going to teach you all things. He's going to convict you of righteousness. He's going to, uh, uh, he's going to teach you about me. You see, instruction of God was from without, from the outside in the old covenant. And yes, we still need it from without through God's word and through God's people. But now there's something different because now the Holy Spirit also teaches you from within and opens up your eyes to what God's word says. Whereas before, you might as well have been reading a foreign language. Didn't make sense. This new covenant is upheld by God. It's upheld by the power of the Spirit. It's upheld by the sufficiency of Christ and his sacrifice. And the Holy Spirit will never let go of you. When he comes and makes residence, when you trust in Christ, he makes residence in your life. The Holy Spirit never moves out. He says, this one is mine. I will never let go of you. I'm going to point out where you're not walking in my holiness. I'm going to speak to you and love you and chasten you. And when you're not listening to me because I love you. But I'm never going to leave you. And I'm here, the Holy Spirit says, because you have been cleansed. Your sins have been blotted out. Otherwise, I could not be here residing within you. You see, in Hebrews chapter 8, and looking at that final verse, verse 12, I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. So how is it that God remembers our sins no more? In other words, how is it that God no longer holds your sins against you? He knows what they are. He hasn't forgotten them in his omniscience. No. This is important. This is so important and incredibly humbling. When God thinks of your sins, he does not hold them against your account. He holds them against the account of Jesus, his son. 
that he holds your sins. Not, he holds Jesus' righteousness to you as if you never sinned. He holds your sins against his son as if he did all the sins. Now you say, if that's the end, does he look at Jesus and see sinner? No. Because he looks at you and sees pure and holy through Christ by the work of the Spirit. And then he looks at his son and all of your sins are not held against you, but they're held against Christ. And when God the Father looks upon Christ, the great high priest, he sees your sins, but then he sees your sins paid for, satisfied, cleansed, finished, done away with, whole, once, forever, lifetime sacrifice in Christ, paid for. That's what he sees. So when you sin, believer, yes, be grieved over your sin. Don't treat holiness lightly. But know that all of your sins have been transferred to Jesus. And when God looks at your sin on Jesus, he says, done, paid for, over with. They're behind me for all of eternity. The Holy Spirit continues to bear witness of the perfect sacrifice that is Christ. The once and for all sacrifice that destroys the power of sin. So what happens when you get saved? The Holy Spirit implants the new covenant into your very nature. You are transformed. You are regenerated. So, in the argument of, of the writer of Hebrews, look at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. So why would you go back to trying to earn your salvation by keeping the law when you can't? When God gives you a good nature, a new nature in his power, he takes care of your sins. He upholds it by himself, not with respect to you, and it can never be broken. Why would you go to that when you've been given this? Why? Christian, are you striving to find approval with God when all you have to do is put your faith and trust and if that's what you've done, then you are approved. And if you're just playing the game, then put your faith and trust now and put aside your striving and let Christ strive on your behalf. The gospel is good news. Good news. And may we be anathema if we as a church preach anything less. Would you pray with me? Father, this, te this text teaches us that the new covenant uphold and upheld by Jesus Christ changes us. It changes us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And that we can walk in truth and in grace and in the power that the new covenant provides. Help us to walk holy. Help us to walk truly in the Spirit in the power of Christ. May you be honored and glorified in us. 
And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.